In October 1930, Walter Seller and Julian Yetman brought out a minor masterpiece. It was called 1066 and All That, and it was a hilarious history of England as misremembered from school days. It's never been out of print, and for decades it was a bestseller. The thing is, though, that 1066 and All That isn't quite the innocent schoolboy nonsense it first appears to be. Hello, good to see you at the History Cafe. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank. And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Cafe, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. A friend gave me a copy of Walter Seller and Julian Yetman's 1066 and all that for my 18th birthday. Actually, I still got it. I was about to go off to university to read history, so it was the perfect gift. The book on how not to do history. Let's have a look. Um, Edward the Confessor. Edward the Confessor earns his nickname, we read, because, quotes, he was in the habit of confessing everything, whether he'd done it or not. Well, Canute was worse. Canute began by being a bad king on the advice of his courtiers, who informed him, owing to a misunderstanding of the rule Britannia, that the King of England was entitled to sit on the sea without getting wet. But finding that they were wrong, he gave up this policy and decided to take his own advice in future, this originating the memorable proverb, Paddle your own Canute. Well, <laughs> well, you get the idea. Actually, I've been flipping through the book for quite a while to find examples that perhaps most people will have heard of. The reason that 1066 and all that was so successful in its time was that in 1930, when it was first published, and for decades afterwards, pretty much everyone was taught English history in school. So all the jokes about Edward the Confessor and Canute and the Tudors and the Stuarts and Mad King George III and the rest were funny because they were exactly the kind of ridiculous nonsense that people remembered as those boring history lessons faded into, well, into history. But believe me, 1066 and all that is not only seriously funny if you know all this stuff, but also cleverly funny. Maybe you've heard of Bloody Mary, who becomes in the book Broody Mary, or Thomas Beckett, who becomes in the book Thomas Abelluck. Well, they sound like just misunderstandings, things you didn't remember from school. But actually, of course, Queen Mary's lack of any children was a very significant factor in her reign, Broody Mary. And Hilaire Belloc was an early 20th century Catholic writer, Catholic type Thomas Beckett, who turned his hand to history and perhaps should not have done. 1066 and all that reads just like history homework badly done. But there's always a hook hidden in the jokes. In 1930, everyone would have spotted all of this straight away. But sadly, nowadays, unless you've got a history degree or done plenty of your own reading or listened to enough podcasts, you'd need a commentary to get most of the jokes. Actually, we'd love to write a commentary, but somehow jokes aren't so funny when you need to explain them. Still, go out and buy a copy and immerse yourself in a wonderful period piece. Let's take another example. Chapter 29. Cause of the Tudors. <laughs> Ridiculous to start with. School students are, or were, always being taught causes for everything. List the causes for the First World War, or the Civil War, or the Industrial Revolution, or the Great Reform Act. So it stands to reason, of course, that the Tudors must have had a cause too. 
During the Wars of the Roses, we continue, kings became less and less memorable, sometimes even getting into the wrong order. Now, this sounds like a throwaway line, but of course it's true. Well, almost. First, there'd been the Henrys, 4th, 5th and 6th. All in the right order. Yeah. Then Henry VI was deposed by Edward IV, who in turn was deposed by Henry VI, who later deposed him back. They'd somehow got in the wrong Wrong order. order. So we go on with the courses of the Tudors. The last of these kings, Richard III, attempted to give his kingdom to a horse. Well, that's, of course, another half-remembered line from Shakespeare, where Richard III, Edward IV's brother, shouts at a particularly bad moment in the Battle of Bosworth, my horse, my horse, my kingdom for a horse, not to a horse. Finally, we're told the Stuarts were not yet ready to be kings, so it was decided to have some Welsh kings, and that's the cause of the Tudors because that's where Henry VII came from, Milford Haven. Come from Milford Haven? He landed in Milford Haven. <laughs> Same thing. <laughs> he grew up in Pembroke Castle, and his name was Welsh to them. Well, if you don't know any of this history, and very few people do these days, it just sounds like childish scribble, Henry the Sixth, Edward the Fourth, whatever. But if, like almost any school student in the 1930s, you'd struggled through all this in history lessons, it was just a scream. It was as if someone was saying out loud the kind of childish nonsense you'd always thought to yourself. All that po-faced history turned into jumbled-up nursery nonsense to be shared among friends and family with a laugh. Now, a lot of the book goes on in this vein. We're told that Charles I, executed in 1649, walked and talked half an hour after his head was cut off. Makes no sense to us. But most children at the time have struggled with exactly this sentence in English lessons, English grammar lessons. It was a well-known punctuation exercise. King Charles walked and talked, put in a full stop here, half an hour after, insert a comma, his head was cut off, full stop. (laughs) (laughs) Then there's the account of the execution of the Duke of Essex in 1601. Now, this was a story that every school child in 1930 knew. You can still, in fact, get a flavour of it from Henrietta Marshall's children's book, Our Island Story, which was published in 1905, and it's one of the very few children's history books to have survived from that time. Nowadays, Our Island Story, Henrietta Marshall's book, is just a joke, an endless list of ridiculously half-remembered and scrambled old wives' tales, which portray the rise of British institutions as a stirring tale of heroism and triumph. But Penelope was given it as a school prize in the 1970s. Worse still, 40-plus years later, in 2014, in a speech against Scottish independence, the Tory Prime Minister, David Cameron, said every child should read this book, Our Island Story. Now, according to the story that every child knew in 1930 from books like Henrietta Marshall's Our Island Story, Elizabeth I, Queen Elizabeth I, had given her favourite, the Earl of Essex, a ring. I love this bit. Now, he was supposed to produce this ring as proof of her support if ever his enemies came after him. Which they did. Well, now, the real history is this, that Essex, the Earl of Essex, gets sent to Ireland to put down a very serious rebellion. But he realises that while he's there, he's getting sidelined at court by his great rival, Robert Cecil, about whom we hear a great deal in our series on the gunpowder plot. Not a man to be trusted. So Essex comes back without permission. Even worse, he shows up uninvited in Queen Elizabeth's privy chamber. Something Uh-oh. something you never do. There followed a series of events which led Essex to launch a disastrous attempt at a coup, landed him in the tower and eventually got him executed. But according to 1066 and all that, Essex finds himself fighting the rebels in an Irish bog. 
getting tired of that, say Seller and Yetman, he dashed out of the bog into the Queen's bedroom, where you can hear the guffaws from the lads in Form 3. Anyway, Essex is sent to the Tower for this. But, explain our authors, Essex had a secret arrangement with Queen Elizabeth that he was to give her a ring whenever he was going to be executed, and she would reprieve him. But although he tried to get into communication with the Queen, he was given the wrong number and was thus executed after all. A ring, give a ring. Telephone. A telephone, <laughs> exactly, which in 1930, of course, was a new thing. So our authors have managed not only to entertain their readers with a ridiculous twist to a well-known story, but actually also to poke fun at the kind of childish nonsense their readers had had to put up with in history lessons from things like Henrietta Marshall's island story at school. And this is where what appears to be a bit of clever period fun turns into something altogether more intriguing. Walter Seller and Julian Yetman's 1066 and all that, which was published in 1930, is a very clever parody of the history students were taught in English schools. But it's more than that, much more than that. This book is also a pointed satire. Until at least the Second World War, if not a lot longer, English history was taught not as at least it should be taught now, as a mirror to the world, a way of understanding how things happen. It was then taught as a way to make better citizens. The idea was to take examples from the past and hold them up for young people to copy. In fact, many history books weren't written at all for history lessons. They were readers, texts to encourage young people to learn to read. So finding out about real history wasn't all that important. These texts were used as a way to smuggle some moral values into the minds of the young. Now, this had led to all kinds of ridiculous invention. Not history, but stories our moral guardians would like us to believe. So, did you know, for example, that when he was a child, Horatio Nelson once set out for school in a snowstorm? As the going got harder, Nelson told himself that he must keep going. After all, his father always said that he should do his best. And so eventually, he made it to lessons. And much later, at Trafalgar, that same spirit would rise up in the great admiral. England expects that every man will do his duty. Every school child in the 1910s and 20s knew about Nelson's long battle through the snow to school. It's complete nonsense, of course, made up. But it was in book after book after book. Students weren't taught much about the Duke of Wellington's strategies as a commander, but they were told plenty about his kindness to a young farm boy and his compassion for the dead on the battlefield. There were also long tales about the childhood of King Alfred and about how his mother taught him to write. That's as well, of course, as Alfred burning the cakes. I remember drawing them. The burning the cakes. Now, there was a remarkable consensus about this kind of thing. The head of history, for example, at Sherburne Public School good school wrote in 1923 that his staff taught quotes above all great personalities taught about them taught about great personalities not, not to them well, may, maybe both <laughs> his opposite number at Andal public school school agreed it remains a hard fact he said that simple stories of the mythical Hengist the culinary Alfred the elusive Hereward the gluttonous King John provide the most suitable preliminary historical education for the average English child I love the culinary Alfred. Yeah, the cakes. 
if you don't know all the other references, it doesn't matter. We'd be here all day explaining. The point was to create a carnival of good and bad examples for young students to copy in their lives. The Historical Association, which campaigned for better history teaching, recommended in 1929 that history, quote, should be built round the stories of the great men and women of the past, end of quote. And more broadly, on teaching to the age of 11, that, quotes, it should arouse imaginative sympathy with the great historical figures which exemplify the heroic virtues and other qualities which children of this age can most readily appreciate. 11-year-olds. Well, there you are. Even educational reformers were agreed that history should be taught as moral lessons. One of the reformers was F. Crossland Happold, who was teaching at a Cambridge school and then was head of Bishop Wordsworth School in Salisbury. Actually, my father, who was an electrician's son, won a scholarship to Happold's school and he used to talk about Happold's new ideas, including a company of service and honour, which he intended to be a new aristocracy of kind of virtuous boys seeping through England and leading it to greatness, uh, a bit like the Hitler Youth at exactly the same time in Germany. My father was one of its first members of Happold's company, not the Hitler Youth. <laughs> anyway, Happold was a historian and an influential member of the Historical Association, which campaigned for better teaching of history. But even Happold argued loudly that children under 12, quotes, may be left to range at will among the numerous stories of heroes and inventors, saints and explorers with which history abounds. I remember I had a book called Saints for Six O'Clock. And he then admitted that even his older classes were taught, for example, to admire the success of the English bowmen at Cressy in France in 1346. Well, of course. And, quotes, the character and achievements of Oliver Cromwell. So not much changed there. Against this background, 1066 and all that stood out like a sore thumb or perhaps a beacon. Pretty much alone, it poked open ridicule at the notion that English history was full of good people or bad people whose example had to be followed or avoided. Its subtitle, after all, was, quote, a memorable history of England comprising all the parts you can remember, including 103 good things, five bad kings and two genuine dates. <laughs> and its success as a book suggests that many of its readers shared the view that all this moralising about great men, mostly, was just nonsense. So in the book, Queen Victoria, for example, comes to the throne and announces her intention, quotes, of being good and plural, but not amused. Now, historians have wasted much ink arguing whether Victoria really said her most famous phrase, we are not amused, as a put down to this or that smutty story told at court. According to her granddaughter, Princess Alice, in an interview she gave in 1976, Victoria denied ever having said it at all. But it's far too good a tale for Seller and Yetman to miss. Instead, they recount the events of Victoria's reign as if they were a children's fairy tale, a series of doomed attempts to amuse the deadpan queen. Chapter 56, for example, entitled, quotes, Fresh Attempts to Amuse the Queen, Wave of Justifiable Wars. And then Seller and Yetman give a garbled list of seven real conflicts from war with China to the Zulu War. But the point is that these were the military adventures in which Britain had established its empire and of which patriotic citizens in 1930 were loudly proud. But Seller and Yetman treat them all to an irreverence that could have come from 2021. Here's an example. Sheikh war, cause, 
the sheikhs were very tall men on the frontier of India who obscured the imperial outlook. Zulu war caused the Zulus. Zulus exterminated peace with Zulus. And of course, the point is that all these things were a bit too close to the truth to be comfortable. Anyway, all these attempts having failed, concludes Seller and Yetman, meaning that the Queen was still not amused, news was brought to the Queen that the Fiji Islands were annexed to the British, quotes, by desire of the inhabitants. At this point, they say, according to some seditious historians, Her Majesty's lip was observed to tremble. Well, well it might. The official story that the Fiji Islanders themselves would choose to be imperial subjects in 1874 rather than a free nation was, of course, completely laughable. It was well known that the King of Fiji had twice offered the island to Victoria because he'd run into debt. In fact, what all this is beginning to tell us is that 1066 and all that was not only an attack on the narrow moralising of history teaching, but also on the whole idea of the British Empire. The notion that the Brits had some kind of God-given destiny to civilise the world, was a nonsense. Bringing Pax Britannica, British peace, to the Zulus by exterminating them? It had always been a sham, a series of thin excuses for two centuries of worldwide looting, slavery and repression. So 1066 and all that is not just a book of jokes. Under the banter, it smuggles out a deeply subversive text a barbed satire with deadly aim at the pretensions of 1930 Britain. But, well, this is a bit of a mystery. Walter Seller and Julian Yeoman were not the most likely characters to break ranks and write this extraordinary tack on the widely held values of 1930. Seller had grown up in Coldstream on the Scottish borders. He was son of a factor or a property manager to the Earl of Hume. He'd been head boy at Tony Blair's old public school Fetties in Edinburgh. Julian Yetman came from a wealthy port wine family and had been an outstanding sportsman at another rather grand public school, Marlborough. They both fought in the trenches in the First World War, but they didn't meet until after the war in 1919 as undergraduates at Oriel College in Oxford, where they'd arrived with dozens of other ex-soldiers. They both read history and became friends. After Oxford, Seller had taught English and history back at Fetty's and later at Camford, another public school. Yetman had been a journalist in Brighton, but had quit in 1926, rather inexplicably, to take a rather dull job in the advertising department at Kodak. He became something of a man about town. So what had turned these two rather conventional schoolboys into commentators with a particularly radical view of their society? Well, the unlikely answer is Oxford. Walter Seller and Julian Yetman's 1066 and all that, which seems to be a book of jokes about English history, actually turns out to be a remarkably pointed critique of British society around 1930. Which raises the question of why two otherwise conventional young men ended up writing it. Now, you might imagine that the grim experience of being in the trenches had changed them. Yetman had volunteered in November 1914, lying about his age to get in like many other young men. Seller was younger and was called up in 1917. Both had been injured, Yetman very badly. But there's no evidence that the soldiers who arrived in Oxford in 1919 had been radicalised by their experiences, as many people have often supposed. If anything, it seems to have been rather the opposite. They got rather used to taking orders. They were rather conventional. 
Seller and Yetman's history tutor at Oxford was George Clark, and he wrote an anonymous series of articles for the Morning Post describing life in the university immediately after the war. He noticed, quotes, a general determination to work seriously and well. It was quite a contrast with Oxford before the war. Clark visits a barber in the centre of town, he tells us. Before the war, the barber told him, undergraduates would lounge about in his shop for hours in their pumps, reading the newspapers. But now, quotes, they come in to have their hair cut once a month and they ask you to do it quick. Clark also reported that the libraries were full and, quotes, lecture rooms have never been so crowded. Most of these ex-soldiers were older than the usual undergraduates and it looks as though they were keen to get on and get back to their conventional lives. But George Clark was no conventional tutor. I first began to think that there was something special about 1066 and all that when I was a young assistant producer in the BBC's history unit. In fact, I tried to make a film about it, but I couldn't get very far. And after a couple of weeks, I gave it up for something else. Decades later, we moved back to Oxford and I remember that Seller and Yemen had been at Oriel College in Oxford. Well, I'd long ago lost all my BBC notes, but we made an appointment with the Oriel archivist to see if there was anything in the college archives. He was very helpful, but he was gloomy about finding anything. And he was right. All we found... was a list of the rooms everyone had occupied. Yeah, and a register of the lectures they'd gone to. The register was a leftover from the days when students had to pay for each series of lectures they attended. The college's senior tutor had abandoned it in the mid-1920s. But for Seller and Yetman, the register gave us a complete account of the lectures they went to. And from that, crossing to the Bodleian Library, we could look up the university regulations for those years, including the modern history syllabus, and work out what options the men had chosen to study. Doesn't sound interesting? Hang on a minute. What we realised was that George Clark, their tutor, had been very influential over these two men, perhaps more so than the others in their year at Oriel. Seller had chosen Clark's specialist period, the 17th century, for his particular study. The two men had also gone out of their way to attend lectures given by Clark's friends. In fact, they'd not attended many of the basic lectures that most students at that time were expected to go to. So we began to root around for more information on Clark... Most historians know him as a rather sombre professor at Cambridge later in his life, Sir George Clark, a fastidious, not to say rather boring scholar. But what jumped out from the Oriel College magazines and from memories of people at the time was that Clark had been a young firebrand. We came across Clark's anonymous Morning Post articles in his personal papers at the Bodleian. There were the corrected proofs. Nobody until now had realised who the author had been. The pieces are, in a carefully understated way, a critique of the way Oxford taught its courses. Clark called it spoon-feeding in those boring standard lectures that everyone was expected to go to. We even came across a set of notes from one of those lecturers, R.V. Leonard, who droned on interminably twice a week about the Anglo-Saxons about which he knew very little except what he'd read in the standard textbooks. Leonard starts with a chronology of kings and battles so dense that we might picture even the most earnest note-takers in his audience putting down their pens in despair. Well, after long hours of this, Leonard turns to the Viking invasions, admitting them to be quite wearisome, uncertain and involved. <laughs> I can't... <laughs> you can imagine a mood of despair descending on the lecture room. Leonard comments that Canute's rule was uneventful. More sighs from the benches, maybe a snore. 
Then Leonard rouses himself and sets out on a purple patch. Canute, he points out, was Slavic. Uh He is therefore prone, says Leonard, to emotionalism. In the Russian breast, he continues, every kind of fire is banked up, ready to flame at any moment in any variety of passion, from vindictive cruelty to religious zeal. Well, now we're right back in school reader territory, sanding off about good kings and bad kings and warning students not to follow the example of the Russians. I can't believe any lecturer could come out with that stuff. But we've seen his notes. We've got them. (laughs) From the lists of lectures his students attended, we can deduce that George Clark told his students to avoid, like the plague, lecturers like Leonard. No surprise there, huh? In 1919, Clark was newly married, living in college the first married fellow ever to do so. In fact, 60 years later, it still caused a stir when I proposed to do the same. He'd been a member of the recently formed Labour Party since before the war. And in those years, he'd organised strikes among workers on the Oxford tramway and another by the nearby Chipping Norton textile workers. In 1921, he won a debate at the Oriel College Debating Society, arguing that the House of Lords should be scrapped. Pretty radical for an Oxford dot. During the general strike of 1926, he loaned his car to the Oxford Strike Committee and was invited to stand as a Labour MP. At the time, his history books caused a minor sensation, not only because they were deeply researched and brilliantly argued, but also because, for example, in the case of his book The 17th Century, they were not like every other history book, a chronological narrative. His book was shockingly an analysis by themes, and it remained a standard text on the period until the 1980s. Now, we can guess from the lecture list that Julian Yetman, in particular, took an interest in Clark's radical ideas. In particular, we can work out that Yetman decided to opt for a new course on the relations between capital and labour. It was an extraordinary course, and it had undergraduates reading, among other things, a broad range of left-wing texts and even Karl Marx. This was barely five years after the Russian Revolution. George Clark, writing anonymously in his Morning Post articles, suggested rather pointedly that the new course had presumably been concocted, quotes, in the hope of counteracting revolutionary propaganda in the university. For Clark, of course, it was exactly the opposite, a perfect introduction to the intellectual origins of the young Labour Party. And he was no doubt delighted that his student, Julian Yetman, had taken it up. Now, direct evidence about Seller and Yetman is notoriously difficult to find, as John discovered as he was researching his article for the English Historical Review. Walter Seller left Oxford after just two years and was perhaps less influenced by Clark. In February 1927, we discover him in a local paper chairing a meeting of a local progressive party at Aberdeen. And the progressive party was a coalition of centrist moderates set up to counter the rise of Labour in Scotland. Julian Yetman, by contrast, went south to Brighton, where he worked on the West Sussex Gazette. There, his columns, which, like Clark's, are anonymous, show him sharply critical of the local Conservative councillors and taking a close interest in the local Labour Party and even the local communists, though he's careful not to appear oversympathetic. How did you know they were his, if they're uh, anonymous? Uh. <laughs> What's that meant to mean? <laughs> Passing on. That's quite a long... Quite a long story. Okay, go on then. We might guess that neither Seller nor Yemen travelled quite as far to the political left as their tutor George Clark had done. 
But there's no doubt at all that a critical view of British contemporary values had rubbed off on them. But even this was perhaps not 1066 and all that's main target. That was Professor Charles O'Man. Seller and Yetman's 1930 bestseller, 1066 and all that, takes an axe to many of the cherished icons of English history at the time. At least, it attacks the way they were being taught in schools. It perhaps reflects the left-wing views of Seller and Yetman's tutor at Oxford, the young Labour activist George Clarke. But this wasn't the only way in which their years at Oxford influenced Walter Seller and Julian Yetman. Scratch the surface of the book and we found more. In the acknowledgements, we find thanks to the editor of the Historical Review. Well, it's a veiled reference to Clark, who had just become editor of the English Historical Review while he was tutoring Seller and Yetman. It was a big honour. There's also a dedication, which reads in Latin, Absit O Man. Now, this is apparently a schoolboy's Latin spelling mistake, because Absit O Men, O-M-E-N, was then a well-known Latin tag, that means something like, let the harm we fear not happen. But absit o man, O-M-A-N, as it's spelled here in the dedication, means something more like, keep o man out. And Professor Charles O'Man had been one of their tutor, Clark's bête noire at Oxford. You see, when Seller and Yetman had arrived in Oxford in 1919, they'd found themselves in the middle of a bitter quarrel within the Oxford History Faculty. It's, well, it's a long and complicated story, but simplifying a bit, Charles O'Man was a champion of the side that wanted Oxford history taught rather like it was at that time in schools. The story of Britain's great progress towards parliamentary government and empire. A matter of filling students' heads with facts, lists of kings and battles. The sort of thing through which that lecturer R.V. Leonard was so laboriously trudging, spiced with cutting remarks on the failures of some famous characters and warm tributes to the virtues of others. Slavic emotionalism. (laughs) Read history books from this period and you would think the main job of the historian was to evaluate the character of famous men. In one of a prodigious number of turgidly factual books that Charles O'Man turned out, he'd written that, quote, history has been affected by the personalities of a limited number of outstanding men. Its lessons can be discovered and taught he declared in his inaugural lecture as Chichlake Professor of History in 1906, we must draw the moral whether we will or no. Now, leading the opposition to this kind of moralising history of good kings and bad kings was Charles Firth, who'd become Regis Professor of History a couple of years before in 1904. What Firth objected to most of all was spoon-feeding students. In his inaugural lecture, he'd roundly attacked the history tutors sitting politely in their gowns before him. Quotes, Our young Oxford historian has been taught not how to find out, but what to remember. It was an accusation Firth would come back to over and over until he finally gave up and retired in 1925. Well, you can imagine the atmosphere in his lecture. Firth had very few supporters in Oxford. He was a difficult, curmudgeonly man, unable to compromise. But like all Regis professors, he was a fellow of Oriel College, where Seller and Yetman were. And George Clark, their history tutor at Oriel, was one of the very few who backed Firth. In fact, Firth had probably had a hand in appointing him. 
Clark's views on the boring spoon-feeding of students matched Firth's exactly. They were of a part with Clark's distaste for the imperial triumphalist tone in which most English history was being taught. What Firth and Clark wanted, in marked contrast to Professor Oman over at All Souls College, was historians who could think for themselves, not dull, mindless patriots who would generally go on to be either dutiful civil servants or journalists in Britain's predominantly right-wing newspapers. And still are. Now I look back at those opening pages in 1066 and all that. Remember the book's subtitle? OK, let's have a look. A Memorable History of England Comprising All the Parts You Can Remember. Memorable, remember, the jokey repetition could not have made the point more clearly. Had Firth had a sense of humour, which he didn't, he could have written it himself. At this level, the book is an extended satire on what happens if you try to cram facts into history students' heads without any understanding. What you get is a scramble of jumbled, half-remembered bits and pieces. Memorable phrases like, We are not amused, or my kingdom for a horse without anyone remembering what they meant, or whether anyone actually ever said them. So take an enlightened modern history teacher, and what would they say? Education is what's left when you've forgotten everything you've been taught. Give students the means to find out and understand for themselves, not a ragbag of bitty lines from history remembered in the wrong order. So under that title, Julian Yetman titles himself Failed M.A. Oxel. It's another joke inspired by Professor Firth. You see, you can't fail an Oxford MA. What happens is you take the BA and then seven years after the date you join the university, you pay a fee and you're given an MA. Uh Still true today. (laughs) It made Professor Firth mad. The MA, he said, should be a proper degree. One in which students were taught to be historians, since the BA course did nothing of the kind. An Oxford MA raged Firth in a memo he sent round, actually while Seller and Yetman were at Oxford, he sent it round to Clark and a few of his remaining supporters. An Oxford MA, he said, is examined only by the scrutiny of a check. Well, he's right. There are plenty of people who still agree. Yetman's joke about it, MA failed Oxen, is yet another sharp reference to Firth and his long-running battle with people like Oman. For decades, 1066 and all that seemed just a funny parody of the stuff most people half-remembered from school and from Oxford. Now that few people know this history anyway, we can stand back and take a sharper look. We can see that the target of the book's satire is all that triumphalist moralising, that superficial preaching about the great British constitution and empire. It also made the point clearly and elegantly that, quote, all the history you can remember wasn't worth a hill of beans. It was nonsense. The book was the direct result of the years Seller and Yetman had spent at Oxford and the influence on them of their tutor, George Clark, and through him, of Charles Firth. 1066 and all that came out first in instalments in Punch in 1929. That's 10 years after Seller and Yetman had first got up to Oxford. By then, things were shifting a little in academic history. That year, Lewis Namier, who was one of Clark's friends, Yetman went to some of his lectures, published an extraordinary and for decades enormously influential book on politics under George III. In many ways, most ways in fact, historians now see it as deeply wrong-headed. Which you can see in John's book, Partisan Politics, published by Exeter University Press. Thank you. Namier argued in... (laughs) 
<laughs> Napier argued in depressing detail that British politics wasn't some great progress towards the best constitution in the world, but a grubby game played for money. It blew a large hole in the notion that the British have the best constitution and the best parliament. A couple of years later, in 1931, a Cambridge historian, Herbert Butterfield, published a little book called The Whig Interpretation of History. Butterfield, in fact, was a friend of the educationist, my father's old headmaster, Crossland Happold. In his book, Butterfield said that it was simply nonsense to argue that British history was one long story of progress. Things just don't work like that. Well, Seller and Yetman would have agreed. In the long run, it's Namier and Butterfield whose books have changed how we understand British history. Though to listen to some politicians, you'd think we were still living in the 1920s. But at the time, it was 1066 and all that, that most effectively exploded the silly myths of British constitution and empire. And it was extraordinarily influential. Appearing in the middle of October 1930, by December it was already in its eighth printing. It was soon turned into a musical, which reached an even bigger public than the book itself. More than 90 years on, it still sells four or 5,000 copies a year. Now at last we can recognise what a profoundly thoughtful piece of nonsense it is. For more on this story and others at our History Cafe, go to historycafe.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have. Or contact us on social media at History Cafe Pod. <laughs>